Um, uh, we may have your own. Do turn to Ezekiel chapter 5, uh, page 833 in the Chapel Bibles. 833. And we're going to read. Um, so. Uh, we started last week, we started this new sermon series in Ezekiel. So we're going to study the whole book of Ezekiel, all 48 chapters over 13 Sundays between now and uh, I, think, uh, I think it takes us to the end of May or the end of June because we're having a break for, for Lent and Easter. So each Sunday we're covering a number of chapters. So last Sunday we covered the first three chapters. This morning we're covering chapters four to seven. And obviously there's an enormous amount to try and cover um, in uh, <laughs> just a few minutes. So, so we're not going to read all three chapters, you'll be pleased to know. We're just going to read a, a, a bit of it and then try and unpack the whole, uh, the whole sort of message. So I'm going to read this morning from Ezekiel 5, uh, 1 to 17, and then the first four verses of chapter 7. So, um, so let me read those and then we'll, um, and then we'll pray and uh, try and explore all that's going on. And uh, so here we go. Ezekiel chapter five, verse one. Uh, Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with a sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, Because you have defiled my sanctuary with your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favour. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now against you and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. And uh, Father, may we hear your words and hear what you want to say to us this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as as I said earlier, you sort of read that and you go, ouch. So let's try and uh, unpack what, uh, what, why Ezekiel is saying this. So just a little recap, if you weren't here last Sunday, um, Ezekiel has been called by God. And in the first chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this experience of coming into the presence of God, of being ushered into the holy presence of God. And at the end of chapter one, uh, when Ezekiel has this, this experience of, and this revelation of God's utter holiness, he falls face down. And then from that presence, God calls him and says, I want, I'm going to give you a message. And it's a message for my people, Israel. And uh, you are just to deliver it. They won't want to hear it. They will reject it. They will persecute you. Uh, but uh, regardless of that, whether they listen or they don't listen, I want you to give them this message. And uh, chapters four to seven that we're looking at this morning uh, is, is sort of the message that uh, God asks Ezekiel to deliver. And it's not a comfortable one, is it? It's a message of judgment and it's a message of God's coming wrath. And so we need to kind of get our heads around this. And sometimes people read the Old Testament and they read passages like this and they think, not sure I like that, God. He seems a bit angry. I think I'll, I think I'll just sort of park, park the God of the Old Testament somewhere else and think, well, that kind of angry God has gone and has been replaced by the lovely God of the New Testament, who's all loving and kind and, uh, and, and, and graceful. The reality is there is only one God and he only has one character He only has one nature and he reveals his character and his nature through every page of the Bible. So it's the same God expressing himself, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we read of the same as we read from um, Exodus this morning, a God of compassion, a God who is gracious, a God who is slow to anger, who's everlastingly loving. That's the first, as I said, that's the, the first time God reveals his character It's gracious and compassionate. So from beginning to end of the Bible, God is gracious and compassionate. His nature doesn't change. In the New Testament, we read just as much about God's righteousness, his holiness and his coming wrath. Let me just read just a few reminders for you. First of all, from the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. The reason Paul writes his letter is 
He says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That line could have come out of Ezekiel's mouth in the Old Testament. He could have been saying that to, to, you know, to, to the people of Israel in his time. But no, this is, this is Paul writing in the New Testament saying the wrath of God is being revealed. The same chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Again, those words could, could, could have come straight out of the mouth of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, but they're not. They're coming from Paul in the New Testament. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Uh, in this revelation, John sees this. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the lamb. Well, who is, who is the lamb? Who is the lamb of God? Well, the lamb of God is Jesus. And the book of Revelation talks about the wrath of the lamb. Well, why is the lamb wrathful? Why is, why is Jesus? Well, it's all about righteousness and unrighteousness. And it's about the, the unchanging nature of God. He is utterly holy. And his holiness doesn't change. And that's why he cares about things that are unholy. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 about the inspiration of scripture and he writes this to Timothy, his sort of young protege. He says, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. And of course the, the holy scriptures that Timothy would have known and had in his hand was the Old Testament, including this book of Ezekiel. So Paul writes to him and says, from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, including Ezekiel chapter 5, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God is the same yesterday, today and forever. His nature is the same. It's never changed from the beginning to the end of the Bible, he is a God of love, a God of holiness, but also a God of righteousness. And because of that, there are times when uh, judgment falls and ultimately God's wrath will fall on unrighteousness. That's the message of the Bible. And that's what Ezekiel has been called to deliver. And Ezekiel, we see from Ezekiel chapter 5 that this is... This is God speaking. This is not Ezekiel speaking. This is not something Ezekiel has, has come up with. All through the chapter, we hear God's voice. Uh, verse, seven of chapter five, verse 5 of chapter 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Verse 7. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Uh, verse 8. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Uh, verse 11. Uh, Therefore, surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. Uh, verse 13, uh, uh, then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. And, and so it goes on. This is, this is the word of God. So when we read this chapter, which is really difficult to read because it speaks about judgment and about it is the word of God. So we need to understand a number of things. Why 
Is this judgment coming? Why is God so angry with his people? Uh, what's the character? What's the character of God? Is, ang- is God angry in the same way that we are so often angry? And what's the effect of his anger? We need to sort of unpack this and understand it in order to understand the good news of Jesus and what God has done in Jesus that we benefit from. So first of all, why is God so angry with the people of Israel? This is his, his chosen people, his chosen race, the, one, you know, the ones who are called to be a light to the Gentiles, the one through whom the message of his love and compassion will, will reach to the whole world. That's why we're here this morning, because that message of love and compassion has been proclaimed. Remember the last week we were thinking about the false hope that the Israelites had, the people of God had. And remember that Ezekiel is writing at a time when God's people are in exile. Uh, They've been thrown out of the promised land. Most of them have been exiled from Jerusalem, including Ezekiel. He's writing from a place of exile. And one of the, they had this hope that whatever they did, however they lived, God would be for them. However they behaved, God would be for them. And there are various things that God has said in the Old Testament that they sort of misinterpreted. So, for example, in Psalm 132, verse 13, uh, this is what it, it says. The Lord has chosen Zion, his, 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 his chosen people, his chosen land, his chosen Jerusalem. He's chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling. Jerusalem is the place of the temple. It's the place of God's presence. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. So people the Old Testament, they read verses like that and many others where God has said, I've made Jerusalem, it's my resting place forever. And so they think, well, whatever we do, God will never abandon Jerusalem. He will never give it up. And so they've got into this mindset of, well, well, we can do what we like. God will always be for us. Remember I said last Sunday, it's one of the the traps that we must avoid and that that so often people think, well, well, yeah, I've, you know, I I, I kind of, I believe in God. I believe God's out there. I believe that God's for me. It doesn't matter what I do. I can live life any way I like. God will, you know, God won't mind. Well, as we're going to see, God, he does mind because he cares. He cares. He does mind. And the people of God in Ezekiel's time, they've, that's what they've got wrong. And that's why they're in exile, because they thought, well, it doesn't matter whether we bother offering sacrifices. It doesn't matter what kind of sacrifice, we, you know, any old lamb will do. It doesn't need to be a perfect spotless lamb like the ones that God requires. So that's their, their false hope and, uh, and their learning that actually God does care. In chapter four of Ezekiel, uh, if you just sort of, you know, just if you want to just have a quick look, just skim through it. I'm not going to read it. But um, God asks Ezekiel to, to sort of do this prophetic action to draw a plan of Jerusalem. Uh, he says, take a clay tablet and draw the city of Jerusalem on it uh, and then lay siege to it. And what Ezekiel is asked to do is basically lie on his side for 390 days in Jerusalem. So over a year, he has to lie on his side as a sort of symbolic action. And then for, and then for another 40 days, so the 390 days represent the years of rebellion of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the 40 days represent the extra years of rebellion of the southern kingdom of Judah. 
And for over a year, can you imagine sort of wandering around Jerusalem and there's this crazy character lying on his side with a clay tablet uh, on which is drawn Jerusalem and it's like set up siege ramps around it. And, uh, and it's just, he's lying on his side. But it's all a kind of prophetic action of what God is going to do. And the prophetic action declares that judgment is going to fall on Jerusalem. So for over a year, I mean, poor bloke, can you imagine? Over a year, he's lying on his side. Uh, just, you know, I mean, he just, you know, do his, you know, get washed and go to the toilet. But basically for over a year, that's what God asks him to do. And, and he does it. And then he starts to speak in chapter five. And it's, and it's all this kind of prophetic action of what, of what God is going to do. But why? Why is God so angry uh, with his people? Uh, verse five, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the nations with countries all around her. Jerusalem is the place where he dwells. It is the place of the temple. This is the place where God has made his presence known. Verse six, yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. It's a terrible indictment because he says they've rejected my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. So the, you know, the, the Gentile nations all around Jerusalem whose behaviour is, you know, is terrible, God is saying, well, your behaviour has become even, even worse. It's become even worse. The basis of God's relationship in the Old Testament with his people, it's a covenant relationship. It's not a contract, it's a covenant relationship. God says, uh, you know, this is... This, you know, I've called you, you're my chosen people. This is my will for you. Obey my will and you will be blessed. Disobey my will and you will be cursed. It's, that's the relationship. Uh, God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And the basis of the relationship is both have a part to play. God has a part to play and the people of God have a part to play. And what has happened in Ezekiel's time and the reason they're in this mess is because they've, they've, they've just rejected God's ways. They've rejected his laws and his decrees. We get a little snapshot of what that actually looks like uh, a bit further on in Ezekiel, which we'll come to in a, probably in a couple of months. But we'll just have a little, uh, a little sneak preview. So in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 7, we get this description of what, is, what has been going on amongst God's people and what's been going on in Jerusalem. Uh, chapter two, 22, verse 7. In you, they've treated father and mother with contempt. In you, they have oppressed the alien and ill-treated the fatherless and the widow. You've despised my holy things and desecrated my Sabbaths. In you are slanderous men bent on shedding blood. In you are those who eat at the mountain shrines and commit lewd acts. In you are those who dishonour their father's bed. In you, there are those who violate women during their period when they are ceremonially unclean. In you, one man commits a detestable offence with his neighbour's wife. Another shamefully defiles his daughter-in-law and another violates his sister, his own father's daughter. In you, men accept bribes to shed blood. You take usury and excessive interest and make unjust, unjust gain from your neighbours by extortion. And you have forgotten me declares the sovereign Lord. This is supposed to be God's 
holy people. This is his chosen race. And how, what a disaster. How far have they fallen from God's ways? And the worst of it is that at the heart of it is the thing that is most offensive in God's sight. And the most offensive thing for God is that he is replaced with idols. God is a holy God and he is jealous for his name. And if we worship anything other than him, it is the thing that that he finds most offensive. So chapter 5, Ezekiel Uh, Verse nine, because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Because of your detestable idols, this is what is going to uh, befall you. And none of it should have come as a surprise to God's people. God has gone to great lengths to explain to them the nature of their covenant relationship and the responsibilities that they uh, that they have. So let me just read from Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, verse 23. So this is before, before the people of God have gone into the promised land. This is before they've even kind of crossed the border. God has promised them that they're going to inherit this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place he's promised it to Abraham. It's a place where they're going to dwell. But this is what he says, Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 23. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you, this covenant relationship. Don't forget it. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So God spells it out. He says, look, I'm calling you into relationship with me. I'm going to lead you into this promised land that you can live in forever But don't forget the nature of the covenant. If you worship idols, you will be in trouble because the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, Verse uh, chapter 11 of, of Deuteronomy, verses 16 and 17. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. And he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. So before God has even led them into the promised land, he's basically saying, look, this is this is what will happen if you break your side of the covenant. This is what will happen if you worship idols. This is what will happen if you reject my my rules and my laws. This is what will happen. You will end up losing your place in the promised land. You will end up being rejected from the promised land. Just one more, again, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15. Uh, So Jeshurun, which means Israel, grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his saviour. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods that your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. So God is, he's, he's angry because his people have rejected him. They've rejected his ways. They are 
worshipping idols. And if it's true in the Old Testament, then you know, we need to learn from that as well, that God doesn't change. God is still jealous for his name. God is still holy. God is still concerned about unrighteousness. If we worship anything other than him, that is a real problem. So that's why God is so angry with his people, because they have rejected his laws and his decrees, and they've become even worse than the Gentile nations living around him. And God is concerned. So that's why God is angry. What about the nature of God's anger? Sometimes we read passages like this and we think, well, you know, God comes across as being so sort of, you know, cruel and vindictive. And it's almost like, you know, the the Israelites, they've just stepped out of line and, and God has just like smacked them down and you know, smiting them off the face of the earth. You know, the, the minute they sort of step out of line. I know, I know I've said this before, but God, you know, God isn't, he isn't angry in the way that we get angry. So, some, so often when we're angry, it's because something happens and we react. And we react not in a good way. You know, you know the, the words that come out of our mouth are not good. And, and the things that we do, it's a kind of, it's a reaction and it's not a good reaction. And when we think about people being, being wrathful, often the image that it has in our mind is of someone who's you know, lost control and is lashing out. Uh, well, God's wrath isn't like that. God's wrath is simply that he is holy and he cannot, he cannot abide unholiness. He just, it's just in his neck. He cannot, he cannot do it. Even if he wanted, he, he just can't. God is holy. And ultimately, anything that isn't holy, his judgment will fall on. His wrath will fall on. It's, it is just the way that it is. He cannot be anything other than that. So it's not that he's sort of flying off the handle. He's, as we'll see, he's said to the Israelites time and time and time again, he's spelt it out to them before they enter the promised land. This is what I'm like. This is what I expect of you in our covenant relationship. And if you break the covenant... This is what will happen. So when we read in Ezekiel 5 of all of this stuff, it's not God suddenly just, you know, flying off the handle and losing his temper. He's just like, well, I told you that this would happen if you did this. Well, you've done that and now this is happening. But God has been just amazingly, amazingly patient. Chapter 4, where Ezekiel has this prophetic action of of you know, lying on the ground for 390 days and, and then for another 40 days, those days represent years. So when you look back at the Old Testament history, the people of God started to worship idols almost as soon as they got into the promised land. And certainly from the time of Solomon. So in the Old Testament, the first king is King Saul. He's replaced very quickly by um, King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament, Uh, King David, who had a heart after God's own heart. And then David's son, Solomon, becomes the next king. And in the time of Solomon, he starts to worship idols. So for 390 years, the people of God have been rejecting his ways. So you could have thought, well, on day one, the minute Solomon put up an idol and started worshipping it, that would have been the moment for God to go, you're done. You're out. That's it. I told you what was going to happen. You stupid boy. Get out and don't come back. That's not what God does. For 390 years, God has been talking to his people. 
For 390 years, he's let them live in the promised land and he sent messenger after messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet after prophet, who said, look, if you carry on like this, one day disaster will come. You must turn back. You must repent. You must acknowledge God in his holiness. If you don't, then God will just do what he's told you he's going to do before you even enter the promised land. For 300, I think that's pretty patient, don't you? Nearly four centuries. I wouldn't have lasted that long. You know, with, you know, with our children, you know, it's like, just do it. You know, we, we, we don't, four centuries. God has said, look, I love you. If you, if you don't change, I will do what I said I'm going to do because I said I, that's what I was going to do. 300 years, how patient is he? So it's, he's not flying off the handle. This is not, you know, just blowing up and losing his temper. He's just said, well, I said I was going to do it and now I'm going to do it. So all of, all of these just terrible things that happen, well, they happen because, you know, God said this is what's... So, you know, verse 10, which is just... Horrific, isn't it? Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children and children will eat their... I mean, it's just, you know, it's gruesome, isn't it? But God said four centuries before, even before that, he said, look, I want to bless you. I want us to be in this covenant relationship. And if, we, if, you, if you live in it and if you obey my ways, you will be, you know, you, you'll be blessed beyond words. But if you don't, this will happen. And now it's happening. Because God's wrath has to fall. He's been incredibly, incredibly patient. But when his judgment comes, it is a terrible thing. And remember, I started by reading from you know, Paul's letter to the Romans. Why does, why does Paul so passionate about speaking about the good news of Jesus Christ? It's because God's wrath must fall on unrighteousness. And the reality is we are unrighteous. We have fallen short of God's glory. We, we're all in the same boat. Paul writes in Romans, you know, all, um, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The people of God had fallen short of the glory of God. They rejected his ways. They were worshipping idols and God's wrath and judgment falls on them. And Paul says, that's our common condition, that we've all fallen short of God's glory. We are all unrighteousness and his, his wrath must fall on that which is unrighteousness. So God's wrath and judgment must fall on us and it will. And it will. No ifs, no buts. God's wrath has to fall on unrighteousness. There is no escape. God's intention is to purify his people. God's intention is to restore the covenant. The problem for Israel and the reason they've got into this mess is because they didn't believe that God would do what he said he was going to do. And the greatest mistake that we can ever make is, is read God's word and then think, well, well, God isn't going to do what he said he's going to do. Well, he is and he does because that's his nature. So we must make sure that we, we don't make the same mistake that the people of God did in the Old Testament. God cares just as much about unrighteousness. Let me just remind you of a few things from, again, from Paul's letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. The acts of the flesh, that is uh, uh, our human nature divorced from the nature of God, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy... Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place. For you can be sure no immoral, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. God cares about how we live. He cares about our behaviour. He cares about our worship of idols. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. If Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Paul says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. God cares about our behaviour. He cares about what we have done, which is why what God has done in Jesus Christ is so, so important. God is holy. God is righteous. He cares about his character. He is jealous for his name and his wrath has to, you know, his wrath will fall. And his wrath will fall on each one of us. But what do we read in the Gospels? What do we read in uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, God's wrath has to fall. But because God loves us so much, he found a way in which his wrath would fall on himself rather than on us. So Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse uh, 39, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. May this cup be taken from me. What is the cup that Jesus wants to have taken from him. We read in Isaiah chapter 51, uh, verse 17. uh, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to the dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. It's the, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of his judgment that has to fall on unrighteousness. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, verse 15. Uh, Jeremiah writes this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup 
filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. It's the cup of God's wrath that Jesus says he is taking on himself on the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he realises just the the enormity of what he's been asked to do, he says, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The good news of the gospel is that God takes on himself the wrath that should have fallen on us. That's the the, the wonder of it, that God expresses his wrath on himself. Jesus on the cross takes on himself all of, of our wrongdoing, all of our unrighteousness, all the things that we get wrong and the mistakes that we make and the uh, you know, the times when we set God aside and we worship other things, when we come in repentance, Jesus takes all of that and consumes it on the cross. Uh, 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 Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says this, uh, they tell how you turned to God from idols. Remember, idol worship, it's the, it's the thing that most offends God. And as we come to Jesus Christ, we turn from all the other things that we've worshipped, all the other idols in our lives. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Who rescues us from the coming wrath. The Bible says there is a day of judgment coming and all of us will stand before a holy God on that day of judgment. And on that day, God's wrath will fall on our unrighteousness. The only question is, will will we bear that wrath ourselves? And we cannot bear God's wrath ourselves. We will be judged and we will be condemned. Will we bear God's wrath ourselves or will we stand before a holy God And his wrath will have fallen on the Jesus that we love. That when we stand before God on that day and he says, well, why should I let you into my heaven? Our answer is because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Everything else is as filthy rags. It's simply because of Jesus. So God, the same yesterday, today and forever. The God of the Old Testament is a God of love, a God of compassion, a God who is slow to anger. Remember, nearly four centuries before God actually expresses his anger. He is incredibly patient. He waits and he waits and he waits. But he's a God of holiness and a God of love in the Old Testament. And he's a God of love and a God of holiness in the New Testament. He hasn't changed. He does what he says he's going to do. And judgment must fall on unrighteousness. And in the Old Testament, the people of God experience that and every human being will one day experience that judgment because heaven will be devoid of all unholiness and all unrighteousness and God doesn't just brush it under the carpet he consumes it on the cross and uh, as we come in a few moments and uh, and share around the tables um, in communion we are being reminded of what God has done of how he's expressed his love for us that God found a way of 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 his wrath 
falling on himself rather than on us. And it cost Jesus his life on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for us. The most amazing thing about God's grace is that if we will respond to Jesus and accept what he's done for us, then God's wrath won't fall on us. It will fall on him. On that day of judgment, he will... He will look on us as he looks on his son, Jesus Christ.